The sun has left and forgotten me. It's dark, I cannot Your stories see. don't define you, but how you tell them will. I'm Sarah Elkins, your host, and I call myself the chief story maker at Elkins Consulting because I truly believe that the only way to have good stories to tell is by creating them in the first place. That means stepping out of your comfort zone and trying something that might make you stretch a little. And today's guest will be a perfect complement to that theme. Quick reminder for our listeners that are interviewing for jobs. Our new course, Get Hired Job Interview Storytelling, is available for just $199. It's an online course and includes a group storytelling practice session so that you can perfect your storytelling before you bomb the next interview. Visit elkinsconsulting.com for more information. Today's guest, Mark Reed, I met through the Biz Catalyst or Biz Catalyst 360 uh, community online and through LinkedIn. And you are going to be so happy when you hear some of his stories, because one of the things that I love about stories like this is this whole idea that we can make a choice and move and do what we want to find a fulfilling life, that you are not stuck in one place. Because as long as you understand that it's a choice, no decision is permanent, except for having a kid and skydiving. Those are permanent decisions. The rest, we can somehow either undo or redo or make a change. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I always start, of course, as you know this, with a very basic request for you to share something with me and our listeners that most people don't know about you, something that's not on your bio or your resume. Um, and of course, as you know, also the reason we do this is so that our listeners have a little bit more um, broad understanding of who you are than just what we start with. So what do you think? Yeah, I, I was aware of that. I listened to several of uh, the, of your episodes, and I'm aware you start the show that way. So this is the only question I was able to prepare for in advance. Um, Yay. <laughs> yes, <laughs> everything else will be spontaneous. I mean, this is spontaneous, too. I just bullet pointed the. I, I came up with three things. And I'll go, I'll move from the sort of mundane, superficial to the more deeper one. So uh, I'll just quickly shout them out. Number one, I used to have a pet tarantula. <laughs> no okay. one knows. I don't even think my wife knows that. So uh, that's one thing. <laughs> what was its name? Uh, I'm embarrassed to say so. I'll I'll tell you, but uh, and then I'll tell you why I'm embarrassed. I named him Seagal. So I used to study Aikido, and Steven Seagal back in the day was an Aikido guy, you know. But you know, this was before he kind of became a laughing stock and became a joke, and like he's banned from Saturday Night Live because he's a a hole, and you know, like he just in his movies tanked and. He was cool back in the day. Yes, <laughs> I, was, I remember. We're we're of the same generation, yeah. so I, I hear you. <laughs> so my tarantula was named Seagal. So uh, there's well, that. Don't be embarrassed because I loved Mel Gibson movies like Tequila Sunrise, <laughs> yeah. and now yeah. I know so much more. I loved right. the Bill Cosby show, and now right. we, we can't love that show anymore. Right. So I hear you. The whole Seagal thing, yep. nothing to be embarrassed about. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for validating that. <laughs> um. So secondly, I'm moving a little deeper here. Uh, I lived, and very few people know this, I lived for a few months on a small Greek island 
called EOS in the Aegean Sea. And I just went there. I <laughs> just packed up, went there, started knocking on doors, asking for jobs. And, you know, I'm a U.S. citizen. So uh, I live in Japan, but I'll always be a U.S. citizen. And uh, so I wasn't supposed to work in the EU. Uh, you're supposed to be an EU citizen to get a, a right. legit job. So this was all paid under the table. But I found two jobs, you know, and it was just all like grunt work, painting, pulling weeds, you know, just uh, helping get hotel. I did a little bartending. And uh, yeah, I lived on a, a, a tiny little island north of uh, Santorini, south of Naxos. <laughs> so oh I lived gosh. on a Greek so island. My sister-in-law has a place on Sifnos. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. It really yeah. is. It looks like the calendars and all that stuff that you see. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Amazing. Okay. Now the deep one. I'm all like right, the, chomping the at the bit over here. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's it's somewhat predictable, I think. If you, I mean, you can hear my accent. I'm from the South. Um, I grew up in Alabama. So I grew up a Southern Baptist and uh, a staunch Southern Baptist. I was actually my class chaplain um, back in the day wow. when you could when you could have such a thing. I don't think you can do those anymore. <laughs> and uh, and so the transition from, you know, being a Southern Baptist to being a Zen Buddhist is, is quite the pivot. <laughs> yes, I would agree with that. <laughs> there you go. Wow. I love it. That's such a great start to this episode. I'm like <laughs> grinning over here. I have to ask, what was Segal's personality? Because I, I understand <laughs> that they do have them. I've, I have a, a irrational fear of spiders like a lot of people do. But I've gotten to a point where I actually just yesterday caught a, one in my kitchen and put it outside rather than squishing it. So I've come a long way since seeing my first gigantic arachnid in Australia <laughs> in 1989. Yeah. Those are scary. Yeah. yeah. Uh, those are like those bird eating spiders or something. Um, yeah. The <clears throat> I didn't have like an irrational fear of them, but I didn't love spiders by any means. I was in a, uh, I had it in college. So I, I went to the University of Alabama. So I was in Tuscaloosa at the mall and there was a uh, pet store. And I go in, I'm just, you know, looking around like you normally do when you just sort of window shop at a pet store, looking at the puppies and the cats and, you know, stuff like that. And then they had tarantulas. I'm like, what? I've never seen a tarantula other than like at the zoo. I can buy a tarantula. And, you know, I was 19 years old, curious. And so I started, <laughs> yeah. And so I started asking the pet shop owner. I don't know if he really knew that much about tarantulas in hindsight but but he had a book too that i could buy it was like how to keep a pet tarantula so i bought the book and i bought the spider and uh, i'm getting to your your question of his personality um skull was cool i don't know he just he he really just sat there most of the time and then when i'd feed him you know he he pounced on the cricket or whatever i'd give him and uh but i could pick him up i learned how to do that very early on and you know, there's eight appendages and you grab them between the second and the third one on both sides and you pick them up and, and I put him on my, my arm and he might walk or whatever. And just, but he was, I don't know. He was cool. Of course it freaked people out when they came over, but then I would pick him up and show them like, you know, and I'd done my research and I'm like, there's, there's not actually a single reported case of a human being ever dying from a tarantula bite. Yes, they have venom, but it's not, it's not strong enough to right. kill a human. So I don't know. you just don't want to be bitten, even if it's not going to kill you. But I had him for five or six years and was never bitten. Not once. No. 
Okay, <laughs> so we have a lot in common, Mark, and not that I ever owned From a that, yeah. <laughs> but the whole spontaneity thing, yeah. <laughs> that impulsiveness, Yeah, because um, I just told somebody this story and I'm not sure it made me look great, but it's okay because I was 19. It was many years ago, right? but um, I was... I had signed a lease for a room in a house with other women in Fort Collins, Colorado. And mm. because I didn't believe in college students having pets like dogs and cats, because I just thought, do you really, are you really going to take care of them? Like right. a house full of girls did not, women, young women did not need also a house full of pets. Right. So when I signed the lease, it was under the understanding that um, only two of us signing the lease would have an option for having a pet. And since I signed early, that would be less one less pet in the house because I wasn't <laughs> going to get one, right? right? And it ended up being not a great situation because the landlord was the owner of the house and his daughter was the one managing it because mm. she was going to be in school for a long time. She was in veterinary school. So instead of paying her rent for seven or eight years, he bought this house for her to live in and manage, which was brilliant. Mm. I, to this day, I'm like, man, if I'd had the forethought and money to buy a house in Fort Collins yeah. <laughs> in, in the nineties, I would have been so wealthy by now, but <laughs> anyway, long story longer, uh, partway through the summer, I'm back at home working two jobs, trying to save up money to go to college in the fall, trying to save up. And she said, she called me and she said, well, I changed my mind. You can't have a pet. And I, and you because of the way, one? exactly. Okay. I want to bring both of my cats. And because of the way she presented it, it was like snitty, kind of mean, really <laughs> demanding. And I do not like being told what to do and what not to do. Right. It's really not a good thing with me, as my mother and husband will attest to. Right. But I will never forget. I said, well, what if I already got a kitten? And she said, this was the kicker, right? The, the coffin, the nail in the coffin. She said, well, can't you take it back? <laughs> and now I'm done. I said, no, yeah. I can't take it back. How would you even ask me that question? She said, fine, we'll just hide it when my dad comes to visit. He lived <laughs> back in New Mexico. So I went out that afternoon and got a kitten. Oh, you, had, you, had, you didn't actually have one. <laughs> oh, it was oh, I love that spite. story. That's terrific. I don't even like cats. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I got this kitten and I, I he was my baby for and he unfortunately only lived nine years. He got sick, but um, I was not thinking long term and clearly neither were you. Because tarantulas can live a long time, right? Yeah, they, they can live like up to 20 years. Mine lived about oh. six. And uh but, you know, again, when you're 19, you're not thinking about, I might have this when I'm 35. <laughs> I know, seriously. <laughs> so, I love that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's perfect. All right. So you said a few things that caught my attention. And I think these stories lead very easily into my next question, which is, um, when you think about a recent experience with your work, something that you, you know, part of what your income producing activities Mm -hmm. Tell me about a situation recently that you realized, yes, this is exactly right. I'm so glad I am where I am right now. Oh, well, uh, I know you said you, you asked recently, but I have to go back a little bit, just uh, okay. a few yeah, years ago, because I, I was an attorney for 10 years. I, I'm in my third profession, basically, in life. Mm -hmm. I've been a teacher. Uh, teacher slash professor at a few universities. And uh, um, and then I was an attorney for 10 years. 
And I walked away from the practice of law. I didn't, I wasn't uh, disbarred or anything. I just walked away. And now I make <laughs> Japanese paper. I make washi. That's what it's called. Uh, traditional Japanese paper, handmade paper here in Japan. And by far, it's the best occupation, best decision I've ever made in my life. <laughs> I'm completely happy. And uh, um, yeah, is that your question? <laughs> well, kind of. When did you know? Like, uh, so oh. I'll, I'll give you an example. <clears throat> Just recently, I had a conversation with a coaching client who had read my book, had listened to my podcast, and was kind of doing one of those stalking things where She'd been following me for a while, but she was uncomfortable reaching out. And she finally reached out. We've been working together for a little while. And she said something to me during our last coaching call that she said, she told me about how she handled a conflict that she was Mm -hmm. struggling with at work. And I was blown away Mm -hmm. by her response because it was a night and day difference from how she would have handled it just three months ago when we first started working together. Yeah. And, and I said that to her, I said, I'm just sitting here in awe of you. And she said, what? You know, she was (laughs) very puzzled by that. I said, no, we've only been working together a few months. And Mm. when I think about how you approached me in our first conversations, even the first two sessions, and your the way that you approach things and the difference in how you approach that conversation with your colleague, I'm just blown away by your bravery because mm. that takes a lot to choose to change how you're approaching something and then to try it out. Yeah. Because you don't know how it's going to end because you, you have the pattern. You know how it's going to end if you do it one way, but yep. you didn't know this and you did it anyway. And I'm just, I'm just blown away and in awe. And she said, I never would have done it if it wasn't for you. Wow. That's a, that's quite a compliment. <laughs> yeah. And of course I'm like, you might have like there are all <laughs> kinds of ways that we learn and grow, Sure, but that spoke to me because um, my strengths finder results, the, the, my top strengths, my two top are strategic and activator. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I tell people is that I activate people. It's what I do. I get people to do things they wouldn't otherwise do. And they're usually very happy about it. Yeah. That's <laughs> <Not> always. <laughs> but that was that was a, another confirmation. And yeah. I get them regularly because that's, I mean, I love my work. Yeah. But having that confirmation, it just, it's those moments that you look at and you, you just think, I'm in exactly the right place. And I'm so relieved mm. that I learned the lessons I needed to learn to get here. Well, I, I I can directly address that with a, yes. a sort of pivotal story um, <clears throat> of when I decided to leave the practice of law, and then uh, and then how the timing worked with my wife and what she was doing. So, <clears throat> uh, I uh, first I was a prosecutor. I was an assistant district attorney in upstate New York, and then I I left that, and then I went back to my home state of Alabama. And I got a job in a at a I was just a right time, right place. I got a, a job at a, a big swanky law firm, a, a very prestigious firm in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, in fact, they represent Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, you know, these and so I worked in securities law. And um so uh I had already kind of had a sour taste in my mouth from practicing criminal law. <laughs> and uh 
uh, for a variety of reasons for overzealous cops who were just charging people ridiculous things. And uh, I just felt like justice wasn't being served. And so I left that anyway, and I get this job in securities law and I had studied securities law in, in law school. So I had some experience with it, but um, I, let, let me go directly to the story. So we, um, we had a lot of cases because of 07, 08 market crash, people lost a lot of money. And so they were suing their financial advisors. Well, we represent those financial advisors. And there was one case in particular that just, it was the catalyst. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, there was a, a, a little old woman um, who had never worked a day in her life. She was a widow. Her husband had died. And the pension money, <clears throat> you know, she inherited that. And I think she had about like 400000 to live on for the rest of her life. So she goes to, a, uh, uh, I'm not breaking attorney client privilege. I won't mention the client, but it's a big, it's a big bank and it's a big financial advisor. And she goes and, uh, and the guy says, Hey, give me a 400,000. I will invest it for you. And I can get you a 15 to maybe 20% return. You can live on the interest for the rest of your life. Market crashes that 400,000 becomes like 60,000. You know, and that's all she's got for it. And she might live 20, 30 more years. Anyway, she goes out and hires Joe Schmo, a solo practitioner who just, you know, hung the shingle out. And, and he's probably never had a security case in his life. He's probably just been a personal injury lawyer. And we're a big firm. There's He's one guy, never had a security case and representing this little old lady who didn't know what she was doing. She was duped. And we represent the big bank, the big evil corporation. Yeah. And there's 10 of us and we specialize in securities law. You know, that's a whole division right. of this law firm. So he doesn't you know, stand a chance. Not at all, really. I mean, we're we're just beating this old lady up. You know, stocks are risky investments. You sign the prospectus. It's on the prospectus that you could lose some or all of your investment. You knew what you were getting into. You know, we're prepared. We're locked and loaded. And I just couldn't sleep at night. So I'm just like, you know what? And this is as I'm approaching my 40s. So, you know, I got the midlife crisis thing going on. Oh, yes, so, of course. <laughs> so, so instead of buying a sports car, I, you know, I decided like, you know what? Uh, I've lived the first half of my life the way I was, quote unquote, supposed to, the, the, what was expected of me. You know, I was a smart kid or whatever, made good grades. So I was either going to be a doctor or a lawyer. And I can't stand blood and guts. So well, lawyer it is. And uh, so I, um, you know, when I, when I was approaching my forties, I'm like, you know, okay, I lived that life that I was supposed to, that everybody expected me to. Uh, it's, I'm about to enter the second half of my life. I'm going to live my life for me. And, uh, and at the same time, I'm clapping over here. Just <laughs> so our listeners know I'm, I'm giving him a applause. <laughs> Thank you. And I'll, I'll wrap it up. I don't like to go on and on, but I just uh, in the timing was also right that I I rekindled a conversation with I, I met my wife. We didn't get married until 2019, but I I met and we dated in 2004, 2005 when I was in Japan earlier uh, teaching at a university. And um, we kept in touch. I, you know, write her an email on her birthday or something. And in 2018, I uh, we started just striking up the conversation through messenger. And I said, um, Hey, why don't you come visit me in America? So she did met my family and all went well. And at the beginning of 2019, she said, well, why don't you come visit me in Japan? So I did. And I just never left. <laughs> and, uh, wow. And, yeah. And you know, her business is, 
And it's a pivot for her, too, because she um, we both have been urbanites all our lives. We've lived in large cities and we've had corporate type jobs. And, you know, it was a transition for her too to to transition to washi, to Japanese paper making. You know, when I met her, she was a uh, she was sort of my boss, actually. And uh, <laughs> yeah, she was, you know, a corporate bigwig. And um, so for us to live now out in the sticks, out in the rice fields, and make paper. Uh, I don't know. Uh, that was a long way to just say, I know that the timing worked out and the mm-hmm. flow of things, you know, I had, I sort of had to have that bad experience in law to know that this is what I really want to do. Sometimes you have to have a, a step back so that you, you can take two steps forward and realize, Oh, I know I don't want to do that. And so yes. I really am grateful for what I'm doing now. Absolutely. I think, and unfortunately, we often have to have some sort of breaking point to make us make a, a significant change in our lives. Yep. That's part of what I hope people learn from our conversation and other conversations I've had on this podcast is you don't have to wait until something breaks before yep. you change something. And and when you do wait, it ends up being um, a lot more traumatic because you don't have preparation. You You haven't thought through what's next. You just break and you walk away and then then you're dealing with all kinds of other trauma. Yeah. So I'm missing a part of your story <laughs> about starting this business. Did, did the two of you together decide to start this business? No, she had our, she's been in it about seven years and I've been in it the last four. <clears throat> um, she, uh, she, I guess had hit her own sort of midlife, uh, uh, quagmire and uh she, uh, <laughs> that's a good word <laughs> yeah yeah it's not used enough i'm bringing it back into circulation um and so she had learned about a um J- japan has a lot of good programs to uh the, you know a lot of good social programs we don't have to talk politics but there's a lot of good uh, social programs in japan one of which was is to do apprenticeships to maintain traditional things and so there was this apprenticeship here in Yamaguchi. She was in Tokyo. She's a Tokyo girl. And uh, she there was this apprenticeship here in Yamaguchi and uh, where she could come and and under the tutelage of a, a master, learn how to make paper from how to grow trees and harvest them and steam them and make paper from scratch. So she did. And she had, you know, she did her three year apprenticeship and then she was able to start her own business from it after doing those three years. So she was just starting her business when I came over and now we've been, you know, developing it the last four years. Wow. Yeah. Talk about a pivot. Yes. yes. <laughs> leaving the US, leaving New York to mm-hmm. Alabama to mm-hmm. Japan. Yeah. And then ending up in the little because t- Birmingham is uh, that's where you were, right? In Alabama. Uh, th- that is where I was before I came back to Japan. I I, I grew up in Birmingham, and uh, and in fact, I didn't go anywhere for the first 21 years of my life. I mean, wow. uh, except for to the beach to Florida or to Six Flags over in Atlanta, and those were the only international experiences I had had. <laughs> they feel international <laughs> well, when, when you're, you're like 12, yeah, right, right. <laughs> and uh, but I had had this desire all my life. Like geography was my favorite subject in school. You know, I would I would just like study maps. I don't know. I was just a map nerd. And uh, so as soon as I graduated college, I was gone. You know, I was like, I went to Japan. I, li- I lived in Korea. I've lived in London. 
Wow. Yeah. I went back to the United States. I lived in Los Angeles and Manhattan and West Palm Beach, Florida. And um, so, you know, when I was 21, I just broke free. I went and lived in Burlington, Vermont, just out of the blue. Like I just. Okay. So I I need to back you up just a little (laughs) bit here because you said you lived life the way other people told you or the way you were supposed to. But this is a contradiction here. And I'm saying this because I think it's important for us to see the evidence of our stories. Yeah. So you're telling yourself, I lived this life as I was supposed to. It was still in many ways in your own terms. Well, that's that's true. Uh, So what basically in a nutshell, you know, my 20s, I did, you know, I was a nomad. And mm-hmm. an intentional nomad, and um, but I was receiving pressure from family and people back home, right. like get hey, a job. Yeah, I mean, I had <laughs> jobs. I, I, you know, yeah. I was making a living, but get a career, you know, and and also, you know, you're. Uh, I'm not saying I'm smart. I'm not bragging or anything, but I would get, you know, like, hey, you're too smart to be just just hopping around from teaching Wasting job to teaching your life. Yeah. You know, so why don't you, you know, doctor, lawyer, pick one. I'm like, well, it's going to be a lawyer. And uh, so I kind of did that out of pressure, I think. I mean, yeah, a a sense of unspoken obligation. I wasn't told go to law school, but Mm -hmm. I felt like I was disappointing people by not doing it, Mm -hmm. by like sort of wasting potential, that sort of thing. So I did it. Like going backward, right? Yeah. So I did it. You know, and I and I I did it for ten years, and then, uh, you know, enough was enough was enough. It's, it's, I'm I'm entering my second life after you know after the midlife uh, <laughs> enlightenment. I call it a midlife enlightenment, not midlife crisis. And right, uh, oh, totally yeah. agree. So when you um when you're making paper, mm-hmm. is I'm sure that this led to your shift away from. Christianity, especially traditional, so traditional Christianity, to what you do now, Zen, and mm. is it Buddhist? Are you Buddhist then? Well, see, the Zen, I, I don't consider a religion. Uh, right. I, I consider a philosophy. In fact, you could be a Christian, you could be a Southern Baptist and study Zen philosophy, and it would not interfere with your faith. Right. There are a lot um, of Jewish people that are also into that. Yeah, they they call them Jew boos or boo Jews or something Buddhist <laughs> Jewish something I, I've heard of that anyway. Yeah, going. there there are Catholic <laughs> pri- there are Catholic priests who will study Zen uh, philosophy, and uh, it, it's the Protestants who are a little more reluctant. Um, they're the ones that sort of feel like they have the uh, the uh, the corner on the market on what God looks and sounds like, so they don't want they don't want to mix with other. We won't talk religion too much either, but. No. Um, but yeah, um, I had already really made that transition before I came over. Uh, and, you know, it just happened that making paper does fit well within the Zen philosophy universe. But uh, um, but I had already made that transition. I, I grew up a Southern Baptist, a staunch Southern Baptist. And, you know, in college, I minored. I, no, I, I'm sorry. I, my major was political science. I had a double major. I, my second major was religious studies. And then my minor was Japanese. And then I, I later went on to Florida State and got a master's in, in philosophy and religion. So it wasn't, though, until college that I had really any exposure to Eastern religion or Eastern thought at all. 
And, you know, in grad school, I uh, had further exposure to it. So it, it was a gradual, it wasn't like a, you know, a, a quick change where I was Christian one moment and then, you know, I just, I just changed altars and prayed to a different God or something. It wasn't like that. It was a really a gradual, even a kind of academic change. Hmm. Oh, that's so interesting. I've, I've never heard it described that way, but it makes sense because that's part of going to college is being exposed to so many different ideas and Absolutely. ways of life and ways of thinking about the world. And um, it's not just about academics and yet yeah. it, provides an academic exposure in some ways, in a lot of right. ways to, to what you're talking about. That's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, academics are, the, is the lens that you're seeing it through, but, mm-hmm. um, but then, you know, in a way that's sort of a scientific uh, lens you're, you're observing, you're not, it's not like going to a church where they're trying to uh, influence you. I mean, right. university, they're not trying to influence you. They're just saying, here's the information. Right. And so you're, you're observing it, you know, and measuring it with your mind, your logic. And, you know, just over time, it made more and more sense to me. The shift. Right. That shift. Wow. That's so interesting. I I think a lot about how we shift our perspectives of the world. And um, I did read an article uh, last year, sometime last year, that basically said that people who live away from their home, particularly overseas, away you know, in a different country, um, have a tendency to be more confident and comfortable in their own identity. <laughs> I, I and, think, yeah, I think travel and education are the two most important things you could do in your life. Yeah, I could see that. Whatever that education looks like, I, right. you know, I look at my boys who they're twenty-one and twenty-four now, and one of them is in college at UM University of mm-hmm. Montana in Missoula. Nice. And the other took some courses at the community college here uh, in Helena, Montana. And now he's thinking about going back to get some sort of a trade certification or or something like that. Sure. And um, he has traveled across country. Uh, and, and we've been to Europe a couple of times as a family. Nice. And one of the things that makes me very pleased with his education is that he's choosing it. Yeah. Yeah. And let me be clear. When I say education, I, I don't just mean like, you know, what I did study political science or something. I mean, it can be it could be a trade school. You know, like I, I have a nephew who learned welding and I don't know anything about welding, you know, right. but he got an education, you know, in that he he has an expertise. He he is trained and he he learned something right. it, to me. It doesn't matter what the something is. It could be engineering, political science or welding. But to learn something rather than just watching TV all the time is what I'm right, saying. Right. <laughs> you know, well, to something learn popped something. into my head though, that I think is really an important distinction here that you're making that I don't, I'm not sure you're conscious you're, you're making, making, excuse me. I'm not sure you're conscious that you're making this distinction, but what you're saying is, to, and correct me if I'm wrong. Sometimes I just, you know, go. <laughs> <laughs> no, <I love laughs> <But it. laughs> what you're explaining to me is that it's a matter of curiosity and humility because education automatically puts you in a position of a new learner. Absolutely. And when you do that over and over again, you know, you become comfortable in the uncomfortableness of being 
humble or, you know, of yes. accepting that humility. Something you don't know. I don't know. And and your your wife did that when she went for this, this apprenticeship mm. of, of something that, wow, I mean, that's a really different thing. Does she have family that did that? Or it was just a, no. she's like you, I, I think I'll go make paper. I think I'll go buy a tarantula. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we we do have a couple. Of, we do have some spontaneous purchases, and I've I've tried to rein it in. I'm like, hey, we can't just because I, I I there's a I, I interviewed somebody on uh on my podcast once that that uh gave me a rule that I I've started applying, and I'm glad I did. She said um she was a scientist, and she but she said um um if she sees something that she wants, like just all of a sudden she's in a store and she sees something like, oh, I want that. She forces herself to wait three days to see if she still wants it three days later. And 50% of the time, she'll change her mind about it. And uh, and I've started doing that. So I, I've kind of you know cut back on the spontaneity a little bit so that I'm not just spending all my money on everything I see and want. Um, it does work. I, I wait three days. I'm like, yeah, you know what? I don't really need that uh, punching bag or whatever. You know? <laughs> That's a very zen <laughs> approach to shopping. <laughs> I'm trying. Well, it makes sense too. I'll actually do that on online if I'm on Etsy. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, I would rather not support Amazon, but I live in Montana. And so sometimes I have to support. Um, I try to avoid it purchases. myself. Yeah. But um, I do, I'll leave stuff in my cart for days. Yeah. And if I don't come back to it, I don't come back to it. There you I, go. I rarely just spontaneously. And like you, I have a tendency toward that impulsive. But I think. I think what's helped me in that, again, I strategic activator, I don't know if you're familiar with StrengthsFinder, but anyone who's listened to any of my episodes here has heard me talk about it because it, it's such a valuable tool for self-reflection. Mm-hmm. Any of the, the accurate assessments can be used that way, but um, I just happen to know StrengthsFinder, but I used to consider myself very impulsive because of that, because I'd have that activator and I'd have this sense of urgency all the time. Mm-hmm. And now I feed it regularly in healthy ways rather than using it in, in unhealthy, un, uh, unintentional ways. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. just far more intentional about saying, okay, my activator is going, what can I use it to do? rather than going out and buying something that I don't need or rather than making reservations somewhere that I don't really need to go or whatever that is. That's good. Yeah. No, I like that. You got to feed it. If it's there, feed it. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Of course you do. (laughs) That's, I love this. I love this conversation, Mark. This is, I've been grinning and laughing through our whole conversation. I knew I would like coming on this podcast. The moment that I, you know, first was exposed to it, I was like, oh yeah, this is right up my alley. I love this. <laughs> I mean, you, it's storytelling, right? The, uh, the, I, I know listeners can't see, but that there's a, I, uh, I'm, I sound braggadocious here, but I won a uh, award from Biz Catalyst for storytelling excellence. Anyway, I like telling wow. stories. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yes. Well, let's, let's come full circle. And I would love for you to tell a story that you've been thinking about, because I know as soon as you knew you were going to be on this podcast, a story popped into your head about your life, about something pivotal. I mean, outside of what we've already talked about, <laughs> but maybe it's something around um, 
one of the trips you took that changed the way you saw yourself and your role in our global community. And the reason I ask that is because, again, I, my husband and I have made great efforts and prioritized spending on travel since our boys were little so that they could be exposed to things outside of Montana because Montana can be very insular. <laughs> very isolating, a lot like parts of Alabama. I was going to say, people, have you been to Alabama? <laughs> yeah, they, they're they born there, they stay there, and that's yeah. the, all they ever know. And mm. I think that's a big part of why we're so polarized now in our country. Yeah. But one of the things that I love to do is ask our boys about trips that seem to change them. And, and I'm just going to share a quick story sure. about my younger son. We had gone to Paris and London. We spent a week in Paris and a week in London. And my cousin lives in London. So we were able to stay at his flat and not have to. So I'm just explaining why we didn't have to spend a ton of money more than we would have otherwise. So we spent a week in Paris and we went to the museums that like the science museum and a couple of art museums. And we had an amazing trip and we walked all over Paris. We took the train. My kids both of our boys have full understanding of public transit, which nice. you ask any other kid who grew up in Montana <laughs> and yeah. maybe, maybe 2% could say, Oh yeah, I use public transit. Right. right. Montana doesn't have really that, but here's the story. I, we were back home. Max was, I think 14 when we were in Paris and it was a few months later. And I said, tell me what you're thinking about with our trip to Paris. What was something that, pops into your head when you think about what you learned, what you experienced. Was it, you know, the the science museum or uh, seeing the all of the the sad um all the flowers and notes that were written to the Bataclan victims because we were there one week after oh, the wow. Bataclan murders. Um was it your first concert when we went to see Caravan Palace performing <laughs> at the Olympic Theater, the Olympia Theater, just um, um less than a mile away from the Bataclan Theater? a week after this murder, like what, what resonates? And he said, you know, mom. And every time I think about this, I giggle, you know, mom, I have some regrets about Paris. <laughs> I'm a 14 year old boy. Yeah. Like what? <laughs> okay. I'm tell intrigued. Me about this. I know. I said, tell me about this. And he and his older brother, we had a two bedroom Airbnb and he and his brother shared a room, but they had their own, which was important, right? They shared a room. And he said, I just found myself getting really annoyed all the time with Jacob. <laughs> and I, instead of just enjoying where I was, I was letting myself, I'm going to repeat those words. I was letting myself be annoyed by Jacob. And mm. he was just doing his thing. He was just being Jacob. But for some reason, I just let myself mm. focus on that instead of enjoying where I was. And I feel like I could have enjoyed it more. I could have gotten more out of it. Yeah. And I said, here's the thing, Max, first of all, wow, if you're going to regret something, that's a great thing to regret. Because yeah, as I say, gonna... that's a mature uh, <laughs> attitude. Yeah, yeah you learned this really critical lesson uh, about regret, like you have a choice here. Mm. I said, but here's, here's the thing that I'm really overwhelmingly impressed by. There are people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, that still haven't learned that it's their responsibility. Their behavior is their responsibility. Their happiness is their responsibility. It has nothing to right. do with somebody else. Right. And when you said, I let this bother me, <laughs> that's what that told me. So 
that's why I'm asking that question. What was the thing that you look back now and you're like, oh my gosh, yeah, that was that was huge. You know, it, it's interesting that um, I briefly mentioned earlier that I lived in Burlington, Vermont. And, um, you know, all the international places I've lived and traveled to, it was the move to Burlington, Vermont, that was like so pivotal in in the big scheme of my life. And so wow. here's the, well, here's the story. So, okay, I had been, I'd been living on uh, that Greek island. I had, a buddy of mine and I had traveled around Western Europe. You know, we'd gone to France and uh, the Netherlands, Germany, Spain. We dipped into North Africa, to Morocco, and then made our way over to Greece. And then he went home and I stayed. I just stayed in on Eos. And um, so anyway, but that eventually living on a little Greek island, uh, you know, eventually the newness wears off on that. And so yeah. <laughs> I, I went back, but I was uh, I think I was around 25 years old. And uh I, uh, you know, I had my, my bachelor's and my master's degree. I had, I had already at that point lived a year in Japan. I had just gotten back from living on this island in Greece and I'm back in Birmingham, Alabama, my parents' house, you know, in the basement, (laughs) typical type story. And, (laughs) and I was just, I was so lost. I just didn't, I didn't know what, like I had the the paper on the wall. I had the, the experience, but I had no idea what I wanted to do. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And was kind of looking for anything. And then I was watching, I will never forget this. I was watching TV and uh, I don't know if the channel A&E is still around, but it was a good channel back then. I think it went mm-hmm. kind of and had stupid shows later on, but uh, there was a show that A&E used to have. It was called Top 10. And so each week they would feature like uh, Top 10 cheeseburgers in America, Top 10, uh, you know, uh classic movies i don't know whatever it would just change each week the theme and i watched this episode it was top 10 uh places in america to live and have it all and so they had all this criteria to you know so Mm -hmm. it wasn't going to be a big city you know you it was something that had a a mix a blend of sort of urban and rural life and you know restaurant to proportion it to the population all this stuff so number two was portland maine number one was burlington vermont so I packed up my car uh, and this was back when the internet was in its Holy fledgling shit. stage. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. I, uh, um, I, um, the internet was still in its fledgling stage. just like 2000, either 2000, or 2001, early 2001. And, um, uh, I, but I did manage to find a room and a house to rent and mailed a check in on good faith. I didn't know the person, the person didn't know me and packed up my car and just drove from Birmingham, Alabama to Burlington, Vermont. And the reason this move is so pivotal is, you know, I knew I didn't know anybody in Burlington, Vermont. But when I got there, I really realized I didn't know anyone. I didn't even know the person I was renting the room from. You know, I was living in the same house with her, but I, I didn't know her. And I, uh, and I, I had this epiphany that... I can be anybody I want to be. It, it doesn't matter who I've been from all my life up to 25. I can change my personality if I want. I could go by my middle name. I, I, I know some people, like I, I've got a friend named Mike, but Mike is actually, his name's Christopher Michael, you know, and his last name. Um, and he goes by Mike. And I thought, well, my middle name is William. I could go by Will. I could all of a sudden be a Will instead of a Mark. 
you know <laughs> what you know what's stopping me nobody knows right. nobody, nobody knows i don't go by will usually and um so i sort of reinvented myself and mm. and in a good way you know because when you live somewhere all your life and you're kind of stuck you're or you're kind of you're kind of stuck in the expectations people have of you. I couldn't just radically change in Birmingham, Alabama, because people would say, well, Mark, you're being weird. Why are you different? Yeah. All We've of known a sudden? you all your life. Right. right. So, but I went to Burlington and Vermont and no one knew me for, you know, any amount of time. So I could be anybody I want. So I did. I kind of altered my personality in ways that I, in positive ways that I wanted to, you know, I had been right. in the past, I'd probably been too defensive about things. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to stop being defensive. I'm going to be able to take jokes. If somebody makes a little joke about me and I'm going to laugh about it, you know, so I just made these little adjustments and I was a different person. <laughs> so and you liked every, yourself. Yes. I liked myself more. And, and then, so every time I've moved after that, that was the pivotal moment. Cause that was kind of the first time I'd reinvented myself and realized I could do it. And that we all can do it. We all can change. You know, uh, Alan Watts is a famous Zen philosopher. And he says, like, you're under no obligation to be the same person you were five minutes ago. I'm like, That's true. <laughs> so anytime I've moved, I've made an adjustment in a positive direction that I wanted to make because I don't have anyone that has an expectation of how I'm supposed to be. Hmm. Wow. I don't think we need to go any further than that because that was perfect. <laughs> that was so perfect. And you're just speaking my language. And um, I, I'm just so grateful that you just shared that. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> wow. I'm okay, grateful for so, you having me on. Yeah. <laughs> now I, uh, we're just going to wrap this up and I would love to know um, what do you want people to know about you? whether you want people to reach out to you. Are you writing a book? What do you want people to know at the end of all this? I've been writing a book all my life and just never finish it. That's, that's uh, something I need to, <laughs> there's another improvement I need to make in my life. Um, but life is a continual, you know, there's another Japanese word called Kaizen and it literally means just like constant and never ending improvement. It really is about the journey, not the destination. You know, I'm not trying to get to some end goal where I'm an enlightened Zen Buddhist monk. I just want to get a little better every day. I just want to do a little better today than I did yesterday. And then in tomorrow I'll work on tomorrow. And uh, as for what I uh, want people to do in terms of reaching out, uh, I guess I'd plug my podcast, uh, Zen Sandwich. Um, it's easy to find. I, I purposely picked a name that I don't have any competitors. Nobody else is called Zen Sandwich or Zen Hoagie or anything like that. So you just type in Zen Sandwich anywhere. It's Sandwich, S-A-M-M-I-C-H, not Sandwich. Uh, I'll, I'll be there. Google, Apple, Spotify, all that. Anyway, listen to all of Sarah's podcast episodes do that first but when you're done and you still have a itch for podcasts go go look for zen sandwich yes absolutely and um for our listeners you don't have to run out and get a pen you don't have to pause this whatever you're doing right now all of this information and some other links will be in the show notes associated with this podcast episode at elkinsconsulting.com and spotify and Apple Podcasts and everywhere else that you find podcasts. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a blast. I knew it would be. Listeners, thank you for joining Mark Reed and myself for this episode of Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will. I am so looking forward to hearing from you. Please send me a message, comment on this 
find me on LinkedIn or Instagram at Sarah Lynn Elkins, L-Y-N-N Elkins, and tell me what you think about this conversation. And maybe, maybe it'll be your turn. (laughs) So listeners, now it's your turn. What is one small thing that you would like to change about you, about what you do, about who you are, about how you react? Are you defensive and you want to change that? (laughs) What is it that you want to change? It's up to you. Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile if you just smile.